1996, there was an expedition to the top of Mount Everest. And on that expedition was a woman by the name of Yasuko Namba. She was a Japanese woman who was a FedEx employee, and she had already scaled six of the seven highest mountains in the world, and Everest, the highest, was what was left for her. And John Krakauer, in his book, Into Thin Air, writes about this expedition, and especially in this woman, who was driven more than any of the other people on the expedition. Driven to the point of almost seeming like she was in a trance, moving herself um, slowly but surely to the front of the line. Her goal was to get to the top of this mountain. And to the top they did, with her leading the way behind the guides. They got to the top of the mountain, and after they began their descent from the top of the mountain, there became a snowstorm that kind of blocked them into where they were, not very far from the summit. And this woman had spent so much of her strength and her energy to get to the top that she succumbed. And she died while they were hunkering down, trying to preserve their energy during this snowstorm where they could not move so that once the storm let up, they could proceed down the mountain. You see, she had the wrong goal in mind. She had the goal of making it to the top, and her goal should have been to make it to the bottom. Make it to the top, yes, but have enough energy, have enough strength, have the plan and supplies to get back down to the safety of at least the base camp, if not all the way down to the bottom. She had the wrong goal in her mind. And so she used all of her strength to get to the top and had none left to finish. I wonder how many of us do that in our Christian lives. We have the wrong goal in mind. We know that Jesus is coming back and we're going to spend eternity with him if we are his. But in this life, we spend all of our energy expending all of our energy in ways that God would never have us do. And we spend much of our spiritual strength and stamina pursuing things that are not ours to pursue. And sometimes we're pursuing the right things in the wrong way, and that kills even more of our strength, doesn't it? That we pursue obedience to God through our own strength or through the law, thinking that our own works will provide for us something that Christ has not already provided. And so if we're living our life that way, we're expending all kinds of energy, we're growing tired, we're growing weary, we're growing faint, but we're not planning for the goal. We think we're planning to live today righteously before God and we're doing it out of our own strength or we're pursuing the wrong things or we're pursuing our own desires instead of his. Any number of things can take its course, but if we're not doing what God has commanded us to do, we're expending our own strength and there's no more available to us because we're not pursuing the right end. This morning, Isaiah wants us to see how we live this life in light of the goal, in light of what we're called to do in this world, that God has called us if we're believers, he he has called us to Christ and he has sent us on mission and he has given us a way that we should be living and we should live that way to the glory of God through his strength and not ours, through his plans and not ours. 
He is the one who is in control of all of that. And Isaiah wants us to know that today. Remember, when we've made our transition to Isaiah 40 from the first 39 chapters, we have changed our outlook a little bit because Isaiah has changed. Isaiah is still speaking to a group of people at the end of the 8th, beginning of the 7th century, around the 700 AD mark. There are people that are listening to him, and and there's a meaning for everything he's saying to those people. But specifically, he has lifted his eyes, more specifically, God has lifted his eyes, to a hundred and some years later when that same nation, the southern kingdom, Judah, will be in captivity. They will be taken away by Babylon into captivity. And so he is speaking to them and he's also speaking to us as those who live um, not as, we're just living as those who are passing through here. We, we are in a captivity of sorts here waiting for our true home, waiting for the new heaven and new earth where we will spend eternity. And so he's speaking to us as well. And remember when we switched into chapter 40, we saw, and I've been, I've been pointing us forward in chapter 40, that those first 11 verses told us that God had a plan to save his people. And it showed us in great clarity both what he would do for those in um, captivity in Babylon, in, in, not, you know, in 70 years of captivity away from their homeland, away from the temple which is destroyed at that point, away from the way to worship God, <clears throat> growing weary and tired of that captivity, he wants to promise them that he has a plan to redeem his people. And verses 1 through 11 of chapter 40 do that for us. It reminds us of the answer to that question. But there was a second question that Isaiah presumes. He presumes that they will say, okay, he has a plan, but is he able to carry it out? And what do chapter 40 verses 12 through 26 tell us? Absolutely. This is the sovereign one. He is a wise creator who has all knowledge and no one can give him counsel. And he is the sovereign one who rules and reigns over his creation. He is planning the steps of his people. He is the sovereign ruling creator who not only has set the stars in their courses, but knows every single one of them by name and none of them escape his notice. None of them can just run away and get lost. God knows where they are. He cares about the stars. When we get to the end of this chapter, verses 27 through 31, where we are today, Isaiah is answering the question that we all would feel in our heart. Is he willing? We know he has a plan. We know he's strong enough, but is he actually willing to redeem us, to deliver us? Now think, if you will, just for a moment of being those exiles, They're taken into captivity into Babylon. About 110, 20 years after Isaiah is writing, they're taken in 586 BC, taken into captivity. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed. Their place of worship, remember, what was the temple? It's where God met them for worship. He was able to come. He said he would dwell there and his people could come to him and that he would meet his people there. He would be their God and they would be his people. And now that's destroyed. And you've been in captivity for quite a while. Now your grandparents are dying. Maybe your parents are dying. Maybe you were born in captivity. You don't know anything but this. Longing for a homeland that you may barely remember, like Daniel, who barely remembers his homeland. Or maybe you've never even experienced. But you're growing tired. You're growing weary. And you begin to ask some questions about God. That's our setting. 
And before we even start this, have you ever grown tired? Have you ever grown weary? The Bible tells us not to grow weary of doing good. Have you grown weary? Have you grown spiritually weary in your life? And when you do, what are you prone toward? We are prone to doubt and to question. Now, God's the all-powerful, all-knowing creator, right? He can take our doubts. He can handle our doubts. But he's already spoken to us about his character through his word. And he wants us to remember what he's told us so that our doubts are overcome with his promises. That's what we're going to learn to do today. So our goal as we go through this text is to make sure that the next time we doubt God, maybe even are angry at God, the next time we question God, and if you've never done that, can I tell you something? You will. The next time that opportunity comes to you, what will you do? What is our life on this earth to be marked by? Well, that's what Isaiah tells us today, and we'll learn that in the next few minutes. Turn to Isaiah 40 and stand. Beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but... They who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So as chapter 40 culminates... In verses 20 through 31, 27 through 31, we are shown two realities about our doubts. Two realities about our doubts. Now, I wrestled with many ways to outline this text, but it starts with this idea of God's people doubting him. And so that's where we're going to look at this text through. When we are tempted to doubt, there are realities about that doubting that Isaiah addresses And that first reality about our doubts are, first of all, our doubts are displayed. You see, God is the one who knows everything. So when we doubt, they're on full display. The people closest to you know that your doubts are on full display. You may not even realize you're doubting. But it's clear. And there's a process to go through if you want your doubts to be overcome. And so remember, those people that are out in the captivity who receive Isaiah's word, you think they're starting to doubt some things about God? You think they're starting to wonder whether God still knows about them, cares about them, can see them, has any care at all of where they are? And so this is where Isaiah starts in verse 
27, and he addresses what their complaints and doubts are in two sentences. Now, I don't know whether the people this, I'm sure this is not what they were limited to, and I'm sure this is not what you and I are limited to, but it summarizes some broad categories that are helpful to us. Why do you say, verse 27, and the grammar is why do you keep on saying, this is a perpetual state, this is the state you are in, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, now, does that catch your eye? Just before we even get to the questions that, that they are, uh, the statements that they are making that Isaiah is asking about, does it catch your eye when he says, O Jacob and O Israel? Why would he do that? Why would he talk to God's people like that? And I read some commentators that said it took us back to Jacob um, when his name was changed after he, after he wrestled with God in Genesis 32. And I thought, oh, is that just a stretch? And then I went through and found out that 19 times in the next eight chapters, we are going to see God's people described like this. And I think it's definitely clear that the way Jacob comes and wrestles with God, the usurper, the heel grabber, and then he is, his name is changed because God says, you have wrestled with, you have striven with God and man, and you persevered. And he changes his name to Israel, the one who strives. And so through that wrestling, God strengthens Jacob into Israel. And what does he do? Jacob wrestles well, and so he he puts his hip out of joint, doesn't he? He gives him a limitation to remind him, you are frail and I am not. And so we have Israel before the striving and Israel after the striving and that's what's being brought here. There was a transformation in your father, Jacob, in your father, Israel, a transformation from one who working on his own strength to wrestling with me in his own strength and finding out he only succeeds when he depends upon my strength. And that's what's before us, especially in the next eight chapters where we see God's people referred to like this 19 different times. This speaks to us, doesn't it? We are the ones who have been redeemed. We have been seated in the right hand, at the right hand with Jesus, at the Father's right hand with all of his blessings. Our sins have been forgiven. We no longer have to give in to Satan. We are freed from that captivity. We are able to now... Um, live our lives righteously before God. He has empowered us to do that. And yet sometimes we sit in the desert and say, do you even know that I'm here? Do you even see me? And we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. I think that's what's going on here. Now look at how they're summarized with these two questions. They're, dis they're on display. God doesn't know about me and God doesn't care about me. That's what the, it's, it's two statements that Isaiah is asking, why are you saying these things? Why do you keep on thinking and saying and, and, and letting these ideas cloud your mind? First, my way is hidden from Yahweh. My way is hidden from Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is that covenant name of God, right? It reminds us of the God who is faithful to his covenant promises. And we've already seen in several ways that the way of God's people is never hidden. We've seen that several times in Isaiah. We've looked at other Psalms that say that, that our way, we, that, that we, may, we may even plan out our steps, but God is the one who directs our path. God knows every hair on our head. He knows everything about us. We, the, the, the psalmist helps us see in Psalm 139 that we can never escape from his gaze. 
Where can we go from his presence? And yet the people in captivity, and sometimes we are saying, my way is hidden from Yahweh. You don't see me. You don't, underst- you don't even see my existence. I, 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 you look out and you look over me as if I'm non-existent. And that is the people in captivity and us looking at our own situation through our eyes instead of from God's eyes. It's looking, I know, this is what it is now. I know what the word says, but my situation tells me that you don't even know I'm here. And we know that's not true. We we know that God knows everything about us, and yet when we don't sense him, when we don't feel his presence. Now all the time, every time I talk about feelings, I need to give these caveats. We should not be driven by our feelings, but we are people who have been created with emotions, right? God created us that way. There are things about us that cause us to be passionate about certain things within our own personality and how God has created us. But when our emotions cloud our reality, we need to talk to ourselves with the word of God, right? So that's what we're talking about here. When we are not sensing God's presence, and the psalmist is full of times where he doesn't sense God's presence. He's in situations where he doesn't sense his presence and he might even cry out to God complaining about him. You need to take care of my enemies. But all the time that psalmist comes to some version of this. But it's up to you, God, and I trust in you. Vengeance is up to you and I leave that to you. So the process leads us to the point where we remember that God always sees us and we look at our situation through his eyes as he's promised us. This will become even more clear as we progress, but there's a second statement that summarizes God's people in exile and us, and that second statement is God doesn't even care about me. Look at, the, look at your text in 27. The last phrase there, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. My justice, that's what the word is, my justice, what is right for me, even according to the promises of God and the state of his people. You can imagine being in exile and realizing that God has promised all these blessings and you're not receiving them. And if you're just focused on the blessings, what what are you as a good, faithful, biblical Israelite forgetting? You are blessed when you obey, but you are cursed when you disobey. And so that's what happens to the nation. And so they're thinking, you, you don't even care about me. What's right for me, you disregard. And we can slip into that same pattern, can't we? We can think because we are suffering or being persecuted or we don't have what we want or things haven't turned out like we want, that you don't care about my happiness. You don't care about my situation. You don't care about my family. It, it, it's the age-old old objection of an atheist, isn't, isn't it? If If God is loving, then why does he let children suffer death or ill or even heinous things? And if God is all-powerful and he lets that happen, then he can't be all-loving at the same time. We can fall into that same kind of objection. I know what you say, God, but my situation is such that I don't even think you care about me. And if we filled in the blank, we'd say, because you're not doing what I want you to do. We don't voice that very often. And as soon as we do voice it, what do we do? I'm sorry, Lord. And we repent and we pull back. So that, that 
that, uh, that realizing when we say it is the word running over us and saying, you don't really mean that because you know better. So this is what's being described. The whole wandering nation and all of their doubts and all of their fears and all of their anger are summed up in this way. They're spending their days thinking God doesn't see them and God doesn't care about them. And we know all too well how easy it is to slip into both of those states. So are we listening? Does Isaiah have something to say to us? I think he does. So our doubts are on full display. We're doubting that God knows about us. We're doubting that God cares about us. Well, the second reality about our doubts, our doubts are dispelled. This is where Isaiah applies what we know about God to our lives and strengthens us. Our doubts are dispelled. First of all, we already know. And there are some things that we already know. Look at what the text says in verse 28. First of all, we already know that Yahweh is the everlasting creator. Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, what is the expected answer here? Is this up for debate? It's not, right? Of course you know. Of course you've heard. I mean, Isaiah could say, I've already spent 26 verses telling you this. I've already spent 39 chapters telling you this. And every author of the, of the scriptures that they would have had before them would have told them the same thing. Our God is an amazing God. And you need to keep him in mind. So the questions are not up to debate. He's not saying, have you guys really never heard this? Oh, you haven't? Well, that's the problem. Then I understand why you're like that. I take it back. You can complain all you want. But, but now I'll take it away from you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you already know because you've already heard. And this gets really personal for us because those yous in that verse, they're singular. He is honing into the individual. You, me, we should stop acting and thinking this way because we individually know these things to be true. Yahweh is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. So notice that the covenant name of God is mentioned, but also the name of God that conveys to us his, his mighty power and authority. So he keeps covenant with these people, and he's the powerful God, and he is everlasting. He, there's no beginning. There's no end. He always has been, and he never changes in his everlastingness. So he is self-sustaining and self-sufficient. This is the God who before any of your problems or your parents' problems or your grandparents' problems or our forefathers' problems or Martin Luther's problems or Augustine's problems or Paul's problems or Isaiah or all the way back to creation, he existed before all of that. And no matter what way the world is going to go and what evils are before us, whatever happens in the future before Jesus comes back, he exists after that. There's no one that holds authority over him that pre-exists him. 
And with his pre-existence, every, that we know as it moves into the second part of that verse that he is the creator of the ends of the earth. We looked last week at some of the, the grandness of our galaxies, and this is just one little old spitball in the middle of it. And yet everything to the ends of that earth from, from one side to the other, top to bottom, inside and out, and everything about it from its existence to its, to its, its reformation, all of that he created. So if he created it, what does that mean? He rules over it. He is sovereign over everything that he creates. He didn't create something and then give it some kind of special power now to hold sway over him. He is the everlasting one. So this is a God that nothing escapes him. Nothing, nothing is outside of his control. It's a God that all of our problems that make us say he doesn't see us, he doesn't care about us, they melt away, don't they? Like wax. He's this eternal flame of self-existing power. And every time we move into this other side that he doesn't know us and he doesn't see us and he doesn't care for us, we're remembering that he made covenant with us. And he is faithful to his covenant. And so we remember that. Now, one of the things that Isaiah is doing is summarizing a lot of what we've already seen in 12 through 26, isn't he? He's already gone into great depth about his creative powers and his ruling powers and that all of the nations and their leaders are like nothing before them. They're like a drop in the bucket. It's not that they're unimportant to him. It's that they hold no candle in relation to him and that he has no counselors anywhere that can give him any counsel, and no one has understanding that he does not have. So we're moving into summarizing all of that because he's addressing a people and saying, why are you like this when you know these truths about our God? Now, if he knows all that, then he is knowing everything within our setting, everything that we might be complaining about. Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. There's nothing that happens on the earth without him not only knowing about it, but orchestrating it for his glory. I read this week a story about a runner who was training for the Boston Marathon, and she was training to qualify. Now, you know I'm no expert on marathons. Marathon and me don't go in the same sentence. But to qualify for that, you have to run a marathon at certain other marathons and do it in a certain time. And then you might get an invitation if you run that marathon quick enough to go in the Boston Marathon. And this woman, was her name was Jill Noble. She writes about this on her blog just a few weeks ago. Um, she, she wrote this whole story about training and being ready and then with all these different things against her in her qualifying for the Boston Marathon, she did not qualify. Her time was not fast enough, so she couldn't run it. And what she was remembering was the marathon that she was training for was in 2013. And in 2013, that marathon had two homemade bombs that blew up at the finish line. And as she began to contemplate her time, her average time that she was doing then, she calculated that she would have crossed the finish line precisely 60 seconds before those bombs went off. And her husband and her children would have been right there if she had qualified for that marathon. And she melted under realizing the mercy of God to her of not qualifying for a marathon in which her and her family would have been injured at best and killed at worst. This is the God who knows everything, even if he wants to protect you from something like that. 
Now, I'm not saying he protected everybody. Clearly, there were people killed. There were people injured. But God shows his favor when he chooses to do so because this is the God. He is everlasting. He is all-knowing. Look back here at what it says in verse 28. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Now, the faint and weary is going, which you saw when we read through this, even if you haven't studied it this week, the faint and weary drive us forward to the end of this verse, don't they? Not fainting and not weary is the phrase that reminds us of our frailty and his inexhaustible power. That's what Isaiah wants us to see. And he says, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So within his knowledge is understanding. We can have knowledge about things that we don't understand, correct? We can know about something and not fully understand it. God's knowledge is encompassed in full understanding. He has full understanding. No one, we already learned this last week, no one can give him counsel. Nobody can increase his wisdom. He doesn't seek counsel because that would mean he has a blind spot in his understanding or his knowledge, and he doesn't do that. So whether it's a marathon in Boston or whether it's something that you're dealing with in your life, God has perfect, unsearchable understanding about those details and has had them from the beginning of time when he was everlasting, before time, because he is everlasting. He has that knowledge of everything that is happening and everything that caused it and everything that will happen as a result of that. Wouldn't you like to know that? I guarantee you, you wouldn't. Because then you try to solve the things that you knew were about to happen and you don't have all knowledge. You don't have unsearchable understanding. So aren't we glad that God reveals to us what we need to know when we need to know it and leaves us to trust in him because he is the one And when we start trying to just think about how much theology that we're not even spending all the time we could in verse 28, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, is everlasting. He is all-powerful. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, which is a way to say everything about the earth he created and he controls. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. He has perfect and unsearchable understanding And that enough could give us enough to meditate on and chew on for months upon months upon months. And yet Isaiah uses it to remind us that God is inexhaustible in his power. Thomas Aquinas is not someone who is is either too popular or not popular enough in today's evangelical world. And my intent is not to wade into that mess, but my intent is to draw your attention to something that happened at the end of his life. A theologian beyond what most theologians have written, the size of his Summa Theologica, this, this gigantic treatise on all things, uh, and seen through the knowledge of who God is. So we're not talking about whether he is right or wrong in those things. So perish those thoughts. Don't be thinking about that. Some of you have read way too much about Aquinas and controversy in the last year. Think about this. Before he dies, three months before he dies, he goes to a worship service, a mass, and he comes out transformed. Whatever happened in that mass changed him so much that he never wrote again. 
He's in the middle of writing a treatise that still captures people for years to try to understand what he was saying, and he just stops. And his servant and his friend, Reginald, turns around and, and, and asks him, you can't stop. You, you, you have to keep going. He goes, I must stop. A few weeks go by, Reginald comes back and presses him again. He, he's realizing that people are being cheated out of all the knowledge of his friend that, that he serves. And he says, you must not stop. You must keep writing. And here's what he said. Reginald, I can write no more. All that I have hitherto written seems to be nothing but straw. And he has spent his life writing things that would keep you and I mentally busy for all the rest of our life. And he realizes as he contemplates the truth of God as revealed in the scripture, everything he's written doesn't come close. And he dies three months later. This is the God revealed to us in the scripture. Now I'm not saying we give up on life and prepare to die. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the more we know about God, the more our minds are filled with his glory instead of our troubles. The more we know about God, the more we're filled with his viewpoint of our life instead of our viewpoint. What he wants to have happen in our life instead of what we want to have happen. What he offers us rather than what the world offers, offers us. The more we know about God, the more we fall in love with him. We are bowed down before him and the less trouble finds us. That's why Isaiah gives these fully pregnant views of who God is as he challenges them in saying, Do you not know that he sees you? Do you not know that he cares about you? That he's in covenant with you? So Yahweh is an everlasting creator. Yahweh has all power and understanding. And Yahweh overcomes our weaknesses by sharing his power. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Do you see how important it was for us to know beforehand that God, Yahweh, never wearies and never faints? It, It doesn't say, except when he gives strength to you. It says he's never weary. He never faints. And yet, verse 29, or verse 29 says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So when we are feeling, I hope you're feeling this switch. We're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about spiritual strength here. There are plenty of times in our life where we don't have physical strength. The older we get, the less physical strength we have. There are some people that never have a lot of physical strength. So we're talking about the spiritual strength to endure the Babylonian exile. The spiritual strength to endure whatever situation God puts us in. And the reason we endure it is not because of our strength, but because of his strength. And what is it saying about God when he says he gives strength in verse 29? He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He is a self-existent God, is he not? He can give strength and power to his people and he never is without. If, if your battery gives strength and power to you to turn on your flashlight, what have you just done? You've cut into its battery life, right? You may even put it to the point where you have to replace the batteries or recharge them. Every time power goes out, you lose power in the cell. God is not like that. God strengthens his people when they are weak and he causes them to stand when they are faint and he never does without 
power and strength. He never loses any on his own. So he can help you out and you out and you out and me and billions of other people all at once. And he still never faints and he's still never weary. And the Bible says in other places, he never sleeps. Is this a God worth trusting? Is this a God that warrants us saying, do you really see me? Do you really care about me? Because we say those things when we are running out of spiritual strength. And Isaiah is telling us, no, God gives you strength. And he's going to make it even more clear for us, isn't it? Our doubts are dispelled, but we already know certain things. So we wait. Look at verse 30. We see a contrast being set up. After all these truths about God, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. So here we have another occurrence of our pair, faint and weary. And it's a simple reflection, isn't it? Even the strongest, most virile, youngest, healthiest among you, human race, are going to grow faint and weary. Even in your own strength. It doesn't mean that you're all going to get to that point. It means even if you are the, the healthy specimens of strength, of youth, of virility, of power, you even grow weary and tired spiritually. We are going to do it physically. That's his picture. He's using that as a metaphor for our spiritual life. And so even those of us who are more seasoned saints, whether you're 15 or 90, the seasoned saints, the ones who have walked with the Lord, who have endeavored to bow before him and be obedient to him and have seen sanctification in their life, even the strongest spiritual people are going to grow weak and they're going to grow faint and there would be a time where you and I are tempted to ask those questions and maybe many others, God, why, why did you take my grandmother home? This is somebody close to us, to Paige and I, who that it was a transformational to the bad part for his life when he saw his own mother die. And for him, she was the most righteous person that she knew. And why should she suffer? It was the suffering. Why should she suffer before she died? We can all fall into this, whether we're spiritually strong or spiritually weak, we can get to this point. And Isaiah is saying, the strongest among you are going to do this, so the strongest among you need it. Definitely the weakest among you need it. If you are going to live a life that pleases God, you need strength, and you need to have it from the right place, because if we use all of our spiritual strength, all of our physical strength, it will come to naught. It will come to an end. We will need recharge. Every day of our life demonstrates this, doesn't it? I don't care how productive you are in the day. What do you have to do at night? You have to sleep. You, you have to rest your bones. So the contrast is stark. We've already seen God, and now we see the best, the strongest that mankind has to offer, and saying even they will grow faint and weary. So the strongest among us will fail in strength, but those among us who wait on Yahweh will renew our strength. Look at verse 31. See the but that begins it? That's how we know those two verses go together. Humans at their best grow faint and weary. So those who wait on Yahweh, who never grows faint, never grows weary, those who wait on Yahweh, their covenant God, shall renew their strength. 
So what is the key? Because that's the first thing we're asking, right? Okay, you've done it for me. God is a great God that I can't fathom and he has all power, he has all wisdom. And there are times in my life where I grow weary of trying to be wise and spiritually obedient to my Lord and love my neighbor as myself. I grow weary at doing that. So if you're telling me that God has all of that and that I don't and that even the strongest among us are going to fail and grow faint and weary, then you, know, you must tell me how. How do I partake of this? And that's what Isaiah moves to. He says, they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. Now, we spent some time looking at waiting. We're not going to go through it as much as we have done before, but there are a couple of passages in the Psalms that help us know what our waiting is like and a couple of passages in Isaiah that help us know that we're going to spend just a little bit of time here to remind us that waiting is not passive right? Waiting is not standing in line and doing everything you can to to transport yourself to the beach until you're out of line. Clearing your mind, thinking about nothing else but the beach. Waiting is an active pursuit of God in the circumstances that he has given us. Psalm 25 verses 5 and then 21 says this, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So every day, all day, the psalmist is waiting on the Lord. And while he's waiting, he says, Lord, you lead me in your truth and teach me for you're the God of my salvation. My integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. So I am pursuing you and you and your spirit are moving in me in such a way that I'm being conformed to the image of Christ and that is preserving me in this life and that is happening while I'm waiting on you. Psalm 27, 14, wait for Yahweh, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for Yahweh. So how do we gain strength? Through our waiting. What do we do in our waiting? Exercise the strength he gives us. It's clearly what the psalmist is telling us to do. And when we are living that way, we're taking courage. Nothing overcomes us. Nothing causes us fear. Nothing causes us dread or anxiety or worry because we are waiting for God. He's the one in control of it all. Why should we worry about anything? Why should we have anxiety about anything? Because he's in control of it all. Psalm 135 and 6, I wait for Yahweh, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So we're waiting and we're placing our hope in the promises that are in his word. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. I'm not even, I'm more concerned about my village being overtaken and waiting for that watchman's call that we should take cover I'm more concerned about how I wait for the Lord and and while I'm waiting that I'm hoping in his word and all of the promises that he gives. Then into Isaiah, Isaiah 8, 17. I will wait for Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Now this is back in Isaiah's time, right? God may seem like he's turning his face, but we have no other way to go. We are gonna hope and wait in Christ. And so that's what Isaiah is saying. So even even when our life looks like he is hiding his face from us, and I'll grant you that there are times he does that, there are times that he he seems to hide his face from us in such a way that we have to by faith believe that he still loves us and still cares about us. We're not walking on the mountaintop, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of of death or somewhere in between. 
And even in that time, when everyone else would say, like to Job, what are you waiting on this God for? Why are you even, why are you even, just, just change everything that you're doing, Job. He's taken everything away from you. Isaiah 25, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that we might save us, that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Do you see how pregnant that is? We have to wait on God for our salvation. We did that. If you're saved in here, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, you waited on God right? You may not have realized it at the time, but now your theology fills in the blanks and says, of course I waited on God, because no man turns to God on his own. Everyone hates God. No one seeks him out. God is the one who turns our heart toward him. He regenerates our heart, gives us repentance and faith that we will exercise unto salvation because we waited on him through the power of the spirit that blows where he will blow. And so you don't know that at the time. You may have been even one who thought that they, that they chose God on their own and realized later on in their life you've been lost for all those years because you had to wait on God to redeem you. And then once he saves you, you can look back and you can say, we waited on him and he is the God who saved us. So what are we doing? Even while we're waiting, we're waiting on him to deliver us again. And what are we ultimately waiting on? In this life, we're waiting on Christ to return again, right? He came the first time so that we would have life. He came the first time that we would have our sins forgiven. He came the first time to die on a cross so that all who would believe in him, like we sang in several different hymns today, would come to him in faith and all that who believe in him will have their sins forgiven and live forever. And yet he also promises that he'll come again and he'll come again in judgment and he will gather his people to himself and he will gather his enemies to be judged for eternity. So we wait that day as well because on that day, we don't have any more death or dying or suffering or anything like that. That's what we're waiting on. Our life is full of waiting on Christ and he fills us with strength and power even as we do that. 26.8 in Isaiah, in the path of your judgments, O Yahweh, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our souls, even when God around us is judging. And he's judging all the time, isn't he? We look out at our nation today and we know that God is judging our nation. It's not that he's about to judge him. Our nation looks like it does because God is judging. And even when he's in coming in judgment, we wait on him. And it is his name and his remembrance about everything of his character that we are remembering when we wait because that allows us to see the judgment and praise God because we know that we do not receive judgment for there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. It gives us the perspective to endure the world while we wait on God to do his will. One other passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Now listen to what this promises. Yahweh waits to be gracious to us. He exalts himself when he's gracious to his people. And he waits to do that, and what's he waiting on? 
Is he waiting on some action by you? Is he waiting for you or I to earn it or get to a certain point of holiness? No, he's waiting on his own timetable because he's in control of everything. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign one. So God acts when he chooses to act because it is the most wise, the most loving, and and accomplishes his purposes in in the best ways. And many times he chooses to leave us where we are because it brings glory to him as he rescues us in his time and his appointed place. All that time, we're waiting because he is choosing to be gracious to us and he is a God of justice. So everything that he's doing is just and it's right. All of this is involved in waiting and we can even go into more detail of this if we had time, which we do not. So when we're waiting, it is not passive. It is remembering everything that we know about God and all of his promises, and it's interacting with our own situation in our families and in our church and in our world and all the places that we are active in, and it's responding to them in light of the fact that this is the God we serve, who is the creator, the sovereign. He is the one who rules and reigns over everything. He is the one who exalts himself to show us mercy when he decides to show us mercy. And he's already shown us the perfect mercy in his son, So even as we are walking through trials and tribulation, we are receiving the mercy of the cross, are we not? We are receiving the mercy of Jesus Christ even as we walk through trials, even as we walk through suffering. But as we do that, we've got to turn to him for that. He strengthens his people when we wait on him, not taking everything into our own hands, not solving our own situations with our own wisdom. Sometimes we have to sit back and take our hands off of our life because God is doing something different than you would think he would. You ever been in that situation? Maybe that's because you haven't trusted him enough to let it work itself out. Because oftentimes, you keep your hands off it and do what you're supposed to do by waiting. It's not to control the situation. It is not to tell God that what you'd like him to do and give him grief when he doesn't do it. It's to wait on him. It's to wait on his timing because he's the one with all the knowledge and all the power. And you take your hands off and wait. And oftentimes, he is up to things that you never even dreamed of. Sometimes it's to your, to your benefit and blessings that are earthly. Sometimes it's, and all the time, it's to your blessings, to the benef- your benefit that are spiritual. And it's always for him to carry out his will because he is working to sum all things up in Christ. We wait on him. We don't take that into our um, wisdom and our knowledge and our power because he has all wisdom, all knowledge, and all power. We ask him to strengthen us to walk in the ways that he wants us to walk. You see, sometimes God has that power for us and even presents it to us and we set it aside and we act as if he hasn't ever done that. And we act as if he's never strengthened us with wisdom or knowledge or what to do or what not to do. We're like the story of an author that, that I read who I don't, I don't know the author, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to use her name, but it, she told the story about driving down the road with her husband and seeing a, 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 a specific car on the side of the road and that car had its hood up and they stopped and they, after talking to him, they realized he was just out of gas. That's all he did. He needed gas. He was in a hurry. He had a business meeting to get to, and he thought he could make it, so he didn't stop and get gas. They had a, a gas can in their car. 
They gave him the gas. They filled up his gas tank, and they told him where there was a a gas station just a mile or so up the road. They get back in their car. Fifteen minutes later, they see the same car stopped over on the side of the road. True story now. The same car stopped on the side of the road with the hood up and the driver of that car even more anxious and, and frustrated than he was before. And they said, what happened? And well, you know what he said. I thought I could make it to my business meeting without stopping for gas. He didn't use the gas that they had given him so that he could make it to his business meeting. He thought that his road and the way he would get there was more important than the wisdom of putting gas in the gas tank. And we laugh at that. And at the same time, we have the God who is self-sufficient and never runs out of power, never runs out of strength, saying that he gives strength to the weary and the faint when they wait on him. And we go on and act as if we're not We don't wait on anyone. We just take care of things in our own life. Well, he tells us this in three different ways. In verse 31, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So that we don't need to spiritualize this into oblivion. That that all these things, this is just a comprehensive way of saying everything you have to do in your life whether you have a chance to soar in your faith like you're on eagle's wings or whether you are just barely getting together to walk, God is with you. God will strengthen you. God strengthens and gives might to those people who wait on him. Those are the people who are in Christ because God sent his son at the perfect time. You know that, right? Galatians tells us that when the time was right, God sent his son into the world that he would die on the cross, that we would have life if we believe in him. That he's resurrected and ascended so that we would have that life. And now we're living in the gospel power. All the power that raised Jesus from the dead is directed toward us. And that's how he strengthens us because he never runs out of his power. Now this is how we we go through life. This is how we go through life in trials and still glorify God. We're gonna look at three passages and then I'm gonna close us. And I know I'm not supposed to tell you that, but I am telling you that because I've seen four of you look at the clock already and I want to let you know I'm coming to the end. It's only been 53 minutes and 26, 27, 28 seconds. I'm keeping track. Romans chapter five. When we are waiting, God strengthens us because we don't wait without staying connected with him seeking him, depending upon him, trusting in him, all because his word tells us what we are to do and what he has done. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now that's pretty good standing, isn't it? More than that, oh, there's more. Can't wait to find out what more. We rejoice in our suffering. We're not expecting that, are we? This is grand. We're waiting for the hope that we have in Christ. We're strengthened through this. We've been justified. And he says, and more than that, you can rejoice when you suffer. Why? 
knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God loves us, and so while we suffer, he is strengthening us because in our suffering, we're waiting on him to take control of all that situation, and that's a product of us being justified. That's a product of us being in Christ that his sacrifice is applied to us. James chapter one. Verse two. James one. Verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness let stead and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You want to have wisdom? Remember, if God can give all his, if God can give us power and strength to overcome weariness and faintness and never have any drain on his power and strength, he can do the same thing with wisdom because he possesses it all. And this is the way we wait. Even in trials where we're tempted, just like the children of Israel in exile, we're tempted to say, God, do you even see us? Do you even care about us? This is the way we wait. We wait knowing that those trials and suffering have a purpose with this triune God who has ordained them for us for his glory and our good. 1 Peter chapter 1. text we just looked at a few minutes ago, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now that's glorious. That is where we're headed. When we keep the goal straight of where we're headed, then the road to get there looks different than it would be if we were just trying to get to the cross and not have the cross get us to eternity. Look at what it says in verse 6. In this, in all these great truths, you rejoice, though now for a little while, If necessary, you have been grieving by various trials. So you're rejoicing in your salvation and your promised inheritance, even while you are being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the goal. 
to depend on Christ and all his wonderful work for us, even when we walk through suffering and persecution and things that confuse the daylights of him, because our goal is not just to get through the day, our goal is to have the days lead us to the day so that we bring glory to God because he persevered in us, all because he loves us. Turn to one more place, and I'm closing with this without even comment. Psalm 103. You know what we're going to do? I'm just, you're going to stand, and I'm going to read this to close us before we sing. I, was, I want you to focus on, as I read, verses 11 and 12. This is the key. He strengthens us because he loves us and he's forgiven us of our sin. We've already seen Psalm 103 earlier in this sermon. I've already quoted a couple of verses from that. But just listen to Psalm 103 as it washes over us. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless Yahweh, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. That's the God who sustains us and strengthens us as we wait. Will you go to him for your strength? Will you go to Christ for your strength and forsake our worldly efforts to control our own life? There's joy in that kind of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for its truth, its reality. Thank you that it's applicable to us in ways that are beyond our, even our understanding. And we ask, Lord, that you would make this so for us. For we desire to be a people who wait on you 
that it's your power and your might that sustains us. It is your wisdom and not ours that guides us. It is your understanding that, in, that, that informs our own understanding. We desire to be a people, Father, who reflects this love to the world, who reflects your power and your strength to the world when they see us walking and running and soaring without growing weary or without growing faint, that we never are questioning whether you see us or whether you care for us because your word tells us overwhelmingly that your faithful, steadfast covenant love to us is from everlasting to everlasting. Let that be, Father, ingrained in us so that it affects our lives. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.